Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. He plugs in his guitar and holds it inches from the amp, building an ear-splitting squall of feedback. As he steps away from the amp, Ben counts him into, I want to be sedated. This program features the work of 2021 writer Michael Overa. In the first half, you'll hear his conversation with curator E.J. Coe. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for taking the time to chat about your work. Can you tell us about your Jack Straw project? Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Um, so yeah, the, the Jack Straw project that I'm working on is sort of a, a novel that's a little bit of an elegy for my own youth in Seattle. So it kind of follows a punk band, uh, some young folks that start making music. Uh, so it's very nostalgic for me. It kind of traces their progression as the the band gets sort of bigger, but also related to kind of what Seattle was, you know, in the early 1990s. Can you talk about your fictional interviews, since I know you have interviews as well, and lyrics as a part of your novel? So it goes back to that sort of like elegy for my youth. And, you know, as I was thinking about the project and getting into it, uh, if I was going to write about a band, the first thing that I felt like I needed to do is go back to when I was 14 or 15 writing punk lyrics and write the lyrics. So I actually wrote uh, basically two albums worth of lyrics. And then I also felt like I wanted it to be organic. I wanted the novel to feel like, hey, this is a real band and we're not, it's not just a novel. This is like you know, they could have existed. So the interviews became a part of that where I had, you know, interviews with the band and, you know, I made up reviews that would have been in the Seattle Weekly and, you know, things from zines so that it's not just a narrative, but that it feels like full texture. And it, it's actually been just a hell of a lot of fun to just flesh this out and create something that feels like a world, almost like an alternative history. But the lyrics are written from the protagonist, right? The protagonist is the one writing the lyrics. And as I wrote, and like I said, I wrote um, basically two albums. And so it was able, I was able to kind of think about two different time periods in this person's life. And so the lyrics really reflect kind of what he's thinking about. So I'm drawing a lot from the bands that I was inspired by, um, you know, bands like Social Distortion and Operation Ivy. And it's been a great sort of excuse to go back and listen to those songs. And really, anytime I feel stuck, to go back to those songs. So can you talk more about punk bands during the 90s? and what the research has been like. What are some of the things you've found during your research? So that's a time period that I grew up. And, um, 
you know, I'm dating myself, obviously, um, but that's okay. You know, in the mid 1990s, you know, 94, uh, 93, 94, when my friends started driving, I mean, we probably spent almost every weekend going to punk shows, any all ages show that we could get into. And so a lot of the research or resources were, uh, it was already kind of there. But, you know, again, I needed to go back and find information. So, again, I'm going back through my catalog of, uh, you know, every punk band that I could think of, um, even some of the esoteric ones, trying to find copies of Friends bands from that time period. But also reading a great book called Loser, uh, which is about the Seattle music scene. And it goes way back to the beginning of Seattle music. And I'd say anybody that's into Seattle music is just an awesome book. And, you know, it goes back to jazz and blues and kind of traces the lineage. And every page has some sort of graphic. So it's not just about grunge, which, you know, people think about and and when they think about Seattle music. Um, And then I also read a book called Smash, which is about kind of the the bands that more people are familiar with, bands like Green Day or The Offspring. So a lot of it has been kind of pairing my experience, you know, kind of going back in the Wayback Machine in my head, right? And then talking to friends that I'm still in touch with and, you know, reading lyrics. So it's been really pleasurable research because it's like, yeah, it's nostalgic, Um it's not necessarily a time that I, at you know my age I want to go back and live, um, <laughs> but it's fun to think about. I've also read about how your novel is exploring the nature of art mm-hmm. and authenticity. Yes. And I'd love to hear more about that too. Yeah. Um, this is something that's like very near and dear to my heart that when we write that it, it's organic. And I think that's part of what draws me to creating that full-fledged experience with you know interviews and song lyrics. Even if I'm not going to use all the song lyrics, they exist. And so the authenticity part is like the reality part for me. And then in terms of exploring art, yeah, I mean, uh, I go back to, so the Author Milan Kundera uh, wrote uh, Unbearable Lightness of Being, among other things. He says, every character is an author's invented self. Uh, Of course, Kundera is far smarter than I am. But, you know, I think that that's part of it, is that when I think about the story and the genesis of art, even though the characters here are making music, that process, I think, is pretty parallel, uh, whatever art we're making. And the struggle that the protagonist is having is, you know, what point do we compromise? You know, if we're going to compromise on art and in music or in writing, you know, musicians have to get to a point where if they sign with a major record label, they've got to be willing to give up some of their creative license. And there are times when writers have to compromise, you know, whether it's with an editor or with an agent. So that's kind of what I was interested in, too, just where art comes from, what the inspiration is, and then how we 
navigate our artistic track, right? How we figure out what are our boundaries as far as like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to move on this point, this artistic point I'm solid on. And, you know, the rest of the people can go to hell if they want me to change it, right? Now we'll hear a selection from Michael's live reading. Mukiltea, Washington, October 5th, 1990. The truck idles, shivering the rearview mirror. It had taken several attempts to get his eyeliner right, blinking and squinting at his reflection in the bathroom mirror. Now he considers wiping it away, but it's too late. His bandmates are squeezed into the cab of the truck beside him, and there's no way of getting rid of the eyeliner without them noticing. And their noticing would mean endless ridicule. The pitch of the engine deepens, and he glances down at the tachometer, the needle dipping towards 400 RPMs. He puts slight pressure on the clutch, and the needle slowly comes back to 700. A horn honks, and he glances up at the green light. Eric, squeezed in the middle seat, says, Fuck you. You know they can't hear you, right? Ben says. Leaning over Ben, Eric puts his head out the passenger window and shouts again as the truck picks up speed. Laughing, he lurches back into the cab, nearly knocking the truck out of gear with his knee. As the road curves towards the ferry docks, the guitar cases slide across the truck's bed and thump against the tailgate. Logan winces. He can barely afford gas. Damage to his Fender Stratocaster would be a significant setback. He makes a mental note to tie down the gear before they leave the party. A half mile later, Ben points to the right and Logan turns onto the side street. The house is a dark brown split level partway up the block. Cars line the narrow roadway. A half dozen people linger near a skate ramp slanting at a shallow angle at the end of the drive. Logan eases onto the gravel shoulder and cuts the engine. There is the rattling clack of plastic wheels on the pavement as a lone skateboarder kicks past. Ben drops the tailgate and starts handing down equipment. So nice to have a man around, Eric says. They leave Ben sitting on the tailgate with the drum kit and carry their gear inside. They don't know who lives here, but it doesn't matter. No one cares who owns the house. To care would mean that they were thinking about status and popularity. It would mean admitting that they cared about such things. The only thing worth caring about, Logan thinks, is the music. Even before they reach the top of the stairs, there is a tangle of noise. There is the telltale synthesizer and swish of Shinobi's revenge and the clack of controller buttons in the living room. Music crackles through the stereo, but Logan can't name the band, and he knows not to ask. Three girls from school sit at a table in the kitchen, laughing as one of them rolls a joint. He recognizes the girls, but he can't remember their names. One of them, he's pretty sure, is in his fifth period math class. She smirks at him, and he feels conspicuous. You know where we're supposed to play? Logan asks. 
The girl points through the window at a cluster of people on the second story deck. The nucleus is a tall biker with a gray beard. As Eric heads outside, Logan sits on his amp, picking at the calluses on his palms. There's no injunction against talking to people, but Logan is navigating between the unspoken rules of punk and the rules that he's crafting for himself. So for now, he tries to look apathetic. For the past week, he's been imagining tonight's show. The image is careworn, as if it's been tucked in the back pocket of jeans worn too many times. With the reimagining of the scene, he changes minor details. The snarl on his face, the shirt he's wearing, the proximity to the crowd. He carves Kelly's face into the crowd, pulling from memories of conversations and making out on her lavender bedspread. In the imagined future show, she had kissed him, spit at him, turned her back on him. Eric taps him on the shoulder and Logan looks up. What did he say? Logan asks. Uh, we're supposed to set up in the basement. What did he say about playing? I told him we're with the band. And? Like he said, then fucking play. They make their way down the narrow staircase, trying not to bang their amps into people or walls. The basement has all the hallmarks of 1970s DIY kitsch with wood paneling, burnt orange couches, and an aggregate hearth. Logan begins looking for outlets as Eric heads out to help Ben with the drum kit. As he tunes his guitar, Logan runs over the set list again. It's simple enough. None of their songs is longer than two minutes, and they'll start with the mediocre cover of the Ramones I Want to Be Sedated and end with the last-minute edition of the Sex Pistols' God Save the Queen. Ben and Eric return, and people look in through the sliding door to see the band. October air with the stink of cigarettes and decaying leaves pushes into the basement, and for a moment, Logan wishes that he hadn't cut the sleeves off of his black flag t-shirt, wishes that he'd brought his safety pin laced hoodie or that he could afford a leather jacket. But it doesn't matter. These kids are not real punks. Most of them wouldn't recognize the sex pistols if their lives depended on it. Never mind bands like the germs, the buzzcocks, or the cramps. These are suburban kids who hold their beer cans like props. Through the sliding door, Logan spots Kelly in the backyard. At nearly six feet, she'd been the first girl he dated that was almost as tall as him. It had been a novelty to kiss a girl without having to bend down, but now it's been 11 days since she broke up with him so that she could date that stoner, Darren. And if Darren's here, he'd better avoid Logan. But stoners are known for being non-confrontational. He plugs in his guitar and holds it inches from the amp, building an ear-splitting squall of feedback. As he steps away from the amp, Ben counts him into, I want to be sedated. There's almost no break between songs, and this is the way they've decided it should be. No breaks between songs, no encore, no overwrought antics. The half dozen kids that the music has drawn to the basement are more interested in slamming into each other than listening. The first pause in the set is before their last song, and this is only by chance. Ben, having broken a stick at the ending of their best song, Pickle Dick, is reaching down for a replacement. In the semi-silence of the room, 
Logan looks for Kelly. She hates the Sex Pistols. But this song is unequivocally for her. He's thought about looking her dead in the eyes as he sings, She ain't no human being. But, for one reason or a million others, she isn't here. A few people are singing along with the lines, No Future, by the end of the song. And there is a crash of cymbals as Logan shouts the final, Fuck you! He unplugs his guitar and turns off the amp. Suddenly, it feels like they haven't played at all. He carries the gear back out to the truck and sits on the tailgate smoking. Ben nestles his drum kit against the cab and lashes it down. Logan thinks briefly about tying down his guitar, but he lets it go. Eric rambles on as usual about someone he'd been talking to at the party. The quintessential extrovert They know that he'll return to the party and find beer and pass out at the house or maybe find his way home later. I'm going to drop off the gear, Logan says. Ben, I'm with you. Catch you fuck nuts later, Eric says, pounding on the side of the truck and walking back to the house. Logan beats his good luck tattoo on the steering wheel, pushes the clutch twice, and cranks the engine over. He makes a three-point turn with Black Flag at full volume, a skateboarder grabbing the side of the truck and following it down the road. They drop the gear at Ben's house and take Highway 99 south to Beth's Cafe. The booths are full of high school kids. Although it's still early on a Friday night, they have nowhere else to go. Most of the people here are like them, too young to go to bars or bigger shows. The familiar soundtrack of Eggs frying on the flat top and chefs shouting insults at each other, at patrons, at staff. The sound of the eclectic jukebox playing everything from Johnny Cash to The Cure to X. Logan no longer bothers to put his money into the jukebox. It's the easiest way to be judged by everyone in attendance. Besides, he's low on cash. Sitting at the long counter, an ashtray between them, Ben doodles logos and skeletons and half-naked women. On a blank piece of paper, Logan writes out band names with dull purple crayon. In one column are the names that the band has had over the past year, including tonight's name, Junkie Jedi. In the second column are the names of bands he likes. A band without a solid name, he thinks, is like a soul without a body. It just wanders relentlessly. A name is more than a brand. It's an identity. And if they're going to be taken seriously, they need the right name. These are throwaway names, Logan says. What about Pickle Dick? Nobody names a band after a song. Logan drops Ben off at his house in time for the drummer to make his midnight curfew. He follows the surface roads back out towards the Boeing freeway. He likes driving past the massive factory at night. The enormous garage doors that slide open to belch out commercial jets are closed. Bright lights create a halo that is visible for miles. And for a moment, it seems like no one else exists. He shifts into fourth, then fifth. Reaching over, he turns off the radio listening to the familiar sounds of the truck and hoping to hear the perfect band name. Thank you.
Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production produced by Levi Fuller and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by Andrew Weathers, produced in part for the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2021 curator of this program is E.J. Coe, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keene. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, Humanities Washington, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rainier Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Michael Folks and Cecilia Ayers for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.